Well, today we're continuing the book of Revelation, and we're still in chapter 3, and Hal Lindsey wrote a book, it's called A New World Coming, and it's basically a commentary on these chapters on the book of Revelation. It gives us the background and the application of the seven churches in particular. So, I just heard about that this week. Now, I'll just pray and then we'll get into it. So, Father, I just thank you that you have given us this opportunity to get together again. And Lord, it's just so encouraging and so edifying. And Lord, it just focuses our attention on you as we hear you reveal yourself to the churches and then you give these promises to the churches for them who overcome. And Lord, it just challenges us to trust you, to claim these specific promises. And Lord, to rest our faith and our hope in you and you alone, no matter what the situations are. And Lord, you challenge us to overcome the things that will try and hold us down and trip us up. So help us to listen well to what your word says in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first things first, the outline for the book, and I do this every week, so at the end you'll know it off the top of your head. So, Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this, or after these things. So part one is Revelation chapter 1, Jesus revealing himself to John. Part two is the things which are, and that's chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. That's the current age we're living in, the church age. And then part 3 is after these things, and that's made up of chapters 4 and 5, where they have the rapture and the church in heaven before the throne of God. Chapter 6 through 18 describes the seven-year tribulation period. Chapter 19 describes the second coming of Christ. Chapter 20 is the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ on earth and then the great white throne judgment. And that thousand-year rule and reign is where you have all those pictures in your head of the lion laying down with the lamb and the child putting his hand in the viper's nest and all that kind of stuff. And Revelation 21 and 22 is the new heavens and the new earth with the, um, the new Jerusalem coming down, that awesome city that we're going to be living in one day. So the next church to look at is the Church of Philadelphia. But I want to go back and just revise what we've covered so far. And it's my goal that you be familiar, especially with these two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, because they really help you to grow in your relationship with God. So I'm just going to go back through quickly and revise. So why seven churches? Well, there's four applications. And remember, there's thousands of churches around at the time. But why did Jesus pick these seven particular churches? Well, they had issues that needed addressing, and so Jesus addressed the issues for these particular churches. But they also apply to all the churches. And we have the opportunity to learn from their problems and their situations and their trials to know how to get through them. So it's like a a church user manual for the pastor. <laughs> you know, what's happening here? Okay, well, this is the attribute of Jesus I need to focus on. This is the promises that he gives us. This is what I need to do. So the pastor can identify certain tendencies that lead to certain dangers and know how to deal with them. And he encourages us as we go through hard times. And aside from that, we also have the individual application. We can apply the remedies to our own personal relationship with God. Like, for example, the Church of Ephesus, losing your first love. And the last application, which we've been looking at, is the prophetic application. And so Jesus picked these seven individual churches because if you line them up in the order that he's written the letters, they actually describe the church age, the predominant kind of church that would happen or that existed over time chronologically. Now it's only in the last 200 years that the church has started to take prophecy literally and not just an allegory, especially the book of Revelation. And that's when people began to notice that there is a prophetic application to these seven churches because if you're living the time of John the Apostle, you wouldn't know. You know, it doesn't say specifically these letters 
are in order of the chronological development of the church through the ages. But when you get to, you know, 1900, 1800, you can look back and say, hang on a second, that all matches up. Now, how are all the seven letters constructed? Well, there's six parts. So one, it's addressed to a specific church. So it says the letter to the church of Ephesus or Laodicean church or whatever. And then the second one is Jesus reveals specific attributes about himself to that church. Now, what he's revealing to them is actually the answer to the problem or difficult circumstances that the church is facing. It's what they need to know about Jesus that's going to help them. And this is awesome because it shows that Jesus himself is the answer to everything. And because the churches also apply to us individually, it means that Jesus is the answer to all our problems and circumstances as well. And we can find them here in these two chapters. So as we study them, it's important that we develop a good understanding of Jesus' attributes, that is, who he is, and we realize, understand, that it's not that Jesus has all the answers, but Jesus is the answer to everything that we can face or experience. And so basically, we read the Bible, we study the Bible, so we can understand who Jesus is, and therefore overcome any problem that comes our way. And the third part of each letter is a commendation. Now, God is really gracious. If God is going to discipline us, he will always try to give us some encouragement first. Jesus commends the churches for what they're doing right. Now, this is an application here for families. When we discipline children, we should always look for something positive before we give the negative. So we don't break their spirit. So Jesus could easily break these churches' spirits. I'm sure he could find something wrong with everything, but he's very gentle, but honest at the same time. So we need to be balanced. And, and this also applies to husbands and wives when we talk to each other. <laughs> it's quite easy to be critical and not to be positive as well, remembering the good points. So part four, the point four, is Jesus shows them where they can improve. So he gives them a congratulations, you're doing this good, well done. And then he says, all right, but this is where you can improve. You've got room for improvement here. This is what you're doing wrong. This is where you're failing. This is where you're sick. And there's only one church that Jesus can't find anything good to say about, and that's the Church of Sardis, the dead church. And as we learned last week, it represents Reformation movement. And today is represented by the mainline denominations. And what have they done over time? They've embraced liberal theology, homosexuality, female pastors, teaching evolution, denying prophecy, all these things. Compromise. What are these things a symptom of? Well, a move away from the authority of the scriptures. Remember the Reformation was a move towards the authority of the scriptures and now, generally speaking, not all of them individually, but most have moved away from the authority of the scriptures and they've brought in all these other teachings, false teachings. And man's teaching and traditions have become more important. Then Jesus gives them a rebuke for that failing. And there's two churches that don't get a rebuke. And the first church is the Church of Smyrna, the suffering church. And this church represents those who were being persecuted by the Roman Empire from AD 100 to 312. And it reminds us that trials purify us. And what's the other church that doesn't get a rebuke? That Jesus had nothing bad to say about it. It's the Church of Philadelphia. It's a missionary church. And it's a time of revival and evangelism. And there's no rebuke for this stage of the church. And then Jesus gives a promise. The last thing, Jesus gives a promise that directly applies to their need. So, always remember that the most important thing that we can learn as a believer of Jesus Christ is not just to believe generally, but to believe specifically. So we can humbly come boldly to the throne of grace and claim these specific promises. Why? Because God always keeps his promises. And what does it say in James? Just remember that if you don't ask, you won't receive. So as we study these, and you read them in your own time, look at the promises that God gives and claim them for yourself as you need them. That's what God wants you to do.
So now we come to the seven churches. So the first letter was addressed to the church of Ephesus. Ephesus is described as the loveless church and represented the majority of the churches up to 100 AD. And they were characterized by good Bible knowledge but a lack of love. Now, these churches still had first-generation Bible teachers, like from the time of the disciples. The Apostle John was still around. So they had good teaching. It hadn't been corrupted at this stage, like generally speaking, overall. And it seems that they got so caught up in doing what they were doing that they forgot why they were doing what they were doing, if that makes sense. And they were good at doing ministry, but they'd lost their right motive. They'd lost their love. And that means they're not relying on the Holy Spirit. They're not filled with the Spirit. And remember that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, the church of Smyrna, one of the churches that didn't get a rebuke, and Jesus said about this church, I know your material poverty, but you are spiritually. You're materially poor, but spiritually rich. Yeah. He says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Now, the majority of churches were persecuted by the Roman Empire during the years 100 AD to 312 AD because they refused to offer a pinch of incense to the emperor and say that the emperor was Lord. And tens of millions of Christians were killed during this time. And so how does Jesus reveal himself to this church? Well, he says, I am the first and the last who was dead and came to life. So in other words, even if you die, it won't kill you. Jesus has set the example. He died and then resurrected. He simply exchanges mortal body for an immortal body. <laughs> Far superior to the flesh and blood body that we have now. Like Jesus is now in heaven with his glorified body, we will never again get sick or tired. We will never forget or lose anything again. <laughs> Our capacity to understand and reason will be enormous compared to the limitations we have now. And of course, we will live forever and ever. So why did the church of Smyrna need this encouragement at that time? We can see prophetically it made sense, but there was a tremendous persecution going on in Smyrna. And in this particular city, the Roman prefect there was really cracking down on the Christians more than all the other cities. But this particular city, the city of Smyrna, really cracking down on the Christians and saying, hey, you need to pay tribute to Caesar. You need to offer a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. This was happening in Jerusalem as well at the time. The churches were underground and went to like house churches and just kind of disappeared. And so they were trying to track these Christians down. And so what they did is they said, look, if you can turn in a Christian, they had this turn in a Christian program, and you get 10% of their property. And so they're like, oh, there's a bounty on the heads of the Christians, 10% of their property. So like their estate. And so they were running and they were being persecuted severely. And so that's no wonder Jesus says to them in Revelation 2, 9-11, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So the promise that Jesus gives at the end is that they will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? It's the judgment that leads to being thrown into the lake of fire. It's the unbeliever's judgment. All the believers take place in the first resurrection. And then you've got the second resurrection and all the unbelievers resurrect at the second resurrection. They're judged and then thrown into the lake of fire. So remember this. He who was born once shall die twice, but he who was born twice shall die once. Then the third letter was addressed to the church of Pergamos, the compromising church. And this characterized the church prophetically from 313 AD to 600 AD. 
And why? Well, Constantine made the church a part of the government. And it's during this time that the Roman Catholic Church developed. And obviously they've got a hierarchy. So how did the hierarchy develop? How did this system of priests that put themselves between God and the believer develop? Well, it's referred to in the scriptures as a doctrinal teaching of the Nicolaitans. We'll come back to that later. Now, remember Antipas? Remember the story about Antipas? Well, his name means against everyone, and I came across a bit more information about him. Do you know how he got the name Antipas? It wasn't his real name. This is what I found out. It's not his real name. He was brought before the court to be tried for the crime of being a Christian. But he refused to confess Caesar as Lord. He said that there is only one Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. And the Roman governor said, Don't you know the whole world is against you? And he replied, Then I am against the whole world. And so they named him Antipas against all. So Antipas is his martyr's name. It's the name he got when he died. He was against all. That's how he died. He stood up all by himself against the world. And God has honoured his love, obedience and sacrifice by allowing his death to be remembered throughout history. This one man in particular. So this is a witness and testimony to God's love and faithfulness. And then Jesus goes on to rebuke the church of Pergamos in Revelation 2, 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So again, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, priestcraft. The victors, Nico, over the people, laity, Nicolaitans. Now how did this happen? Well, we talked about Balaam and seducing the children of Israel to commit sexual immorality and eat food, sacrifice to idols, and that literally happened uh, here, the, the pagan religions mixing. But what happened was the church began to really compromise. The bishop of Rome began to say, I'm more important than all the other bishops of all the other cities. Like the pastor, the bishop of Rome, began to say, I'm more important than all the other pastors. And because Rome was a seat of government, Rome was where the government was, the government stepped in and said, yeah, okay, the Bishop of Rome is the most important bishop, the most important person in the church. And so over the years, this system of hierarchy began to take shape. And it developed into a system where the priests would, or the bishop, they started calling them priests, began putting themselves in the role of standing between God and the Christian believer. And using the power of government, they began to make this a virtual government of itself. So the Roman government at the time was supporting them, and they became like this really strong authority figure, both religiously or spiritually as well as practically. And that's how the Roman Catholic Church developed. And Jesus warns them in Revelation 2.16, Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Why do you say that? Well, the Bible is above all. They were trusting in their traditions and their new rules and regulations they had. But the Bible is above all. It takes priority over everyone, even the Bishop of Rome. No Christian has any authority except what they find in the Bible, the true authority given to each of us by God. And that authority does not include having authority over another Christian to forgive sins <laughs> and to tell them what to do. We can't do that. Now, also, every Christian has the right and duty to check out everything and everything that is said to them. So basically, the, these priests and stuff, they said, you can't question us. Well, that's wrong. You can question anyone. And you should question anyone. Acts 17.11, these were more fan-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So we're supposed to have teachers and we're meant to listen to them, but we're not to blindly follow anyone. And that's why everyone needs to learn the basics of the word of God. So we need to be taught. Okay, and 
An example of this, why there shouldn't be a priest in between the people and God, one of the verses that helps us understand that is First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he, God, I put that in there, so that he is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what this means is that we come directly to God when we confess our sins. We acknowledge to him what we have done, and God says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So this practice of the priest forgiving sins is wrong. Now, the faithful, God is faithful because he always keeps his promises, and just. What does it mean by just? Why does it use the word just there? Well, God isn't just saying, oh, you can go free. Yeah, I feel like letting you go. No, the penalty was paid. Jesus died on the cross, and he paid the penalty for the sins of all mankind. So God is just in letting us go free, in forgiving us. And the other thing here with this church is that every believer should have access to the Scriptures. And every believer should know the Bible well enough to know if someone is trying to mislead them. So it's our responsibility to be in the Word enough to know what is true and to check out what people are saying. And that's going to take some time. It's going to take some time. It's not going to be an easy thing because you have to start digging, you have to start searching. And that's what God wants you to do. But it's worth it. Why? Because you save you a whole lot of pain and suffering as you follow false doctrine. You waste your life if you follow false doctrine and false teaching. Now the fourth letter was to the church of Thyatira, the corrupt church, AD 601 and on. It was actually 590, but I just rounded it to the century so it's easy to remember. So the fifth church was the church of Sardis, a dead church, as we know it, as Jesus said, uh, from AD 1500. And the church represents the Reformation. They received the word of God, the gospel of grace, which we talked about last week, but they didn't hold on to it, and they bought into liberal theology. And they're also characterized by their orthodoxy or tradition and not accepting the filling or empowering of the Spirit. Now the sixth church, when we look at today, is the Church of Philadelphia, which is the faithful church, roughly from about 1750 on. And it's characterized by evangelism, revival, and missions. Now, see if you recognize some of these names. Amy Carmichael, Eric Little, George Mueller, Gladys Aylwood, Jim Elliott, Richard Warrenbrand, Robert Germain Thomas, John Wesley, and John Woodfield. You recognize any of those guys? Yeah, so we'll come back to that later. Now, it's from this time that the study of eschatology, or end times, becomes important. And it was studied carefully and was systematized. And it's also during this period that the church began to take prophecy literally as opposed to just an allegory. And the seventh church, uh, we'll get into next week, is characterized by compromise and apostasy. So basically, the last four churches all coexist. But the Laodicean church, one we'll get into next week, is the predominant type of church. So they've got the Catholic church still around, Church of Thyatira. You've got the, the start of church around, the mainline churches resting in their reputation of the Reformation. And you've still got some churches who are evangelizing and uh, reaching out and, with missions. But the main face of the church these days is going to be this apostate compromising church. It's going to be this church which is going to draw many people with an emphasis on the prosperity gospel, healing, self-gratification, and that's the latest in church. So I'm going to today look at the Philadelphian church. So we'll read in your Bibles, if you want to open up to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, and we'll only get about halfway through. This is a really, really awesome letter, this one. I really got a lot out of this as I was reading it and studying it. Because uh, I believe that this church represents us here um, today. So, yeah, it's probably the closest or the best fit. So, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts 
and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if we start at verse 7, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, So what do we know about the church of Philadelphia? It's called, or represents, the city of brotherly love. That's what the name means. Philadelphia is brotherly love. It's the youngest of the seven cities, and guess what? It was originally found as a missionary outpost, but not for the gospel. It was a missionary outpost established by the Greeks to push their culture out into non-Greek speaking areas. So you had this city put on the kind of the frontier where they, they call them barbarians, people who don't speak the language, speak a different language. And so they, they wanted to export their Greek culture, the Greek language, into these people because that's how Alexander did it. And that's why all the people spoke Greek because he was quite successful in doing that. And I've got a quote here from a guy called Barclay. Philadelphia had been built with the deliberate intention that it might become a missionary city. Beyond Philadelphia lay the wilds of Phrygia and the barbarous, that is, non-Greek-speaking tribes. And it was intended that the function of Philadelphia should be to spread the Greek language, the Greek way of life, the Greek civilization through the regions beyond. What does this church represent prophetically? The missionary church. So, not only at the time was this city spreading the message of the Greek culture, but also the church in this city was a missionary church. It was taking the gospel to these unreached people groups. Well, God is giving them an open door to evangelize, to share the gospel. And that's what missions is all about. Now, where are these unreached people groups? Do you have to go far? It could be next door. You might have an unreached people group next door. It could be the family next door who's unreached. So how did this missionary movement start? It started in roughly the year 1793. I've just got a little story here. So it goes like this. Two books sat in the London shop of a young cobbler, a well-worn Bible and Captain Cook's journal. As the days went by, the cobbler found himself losing interest in working on the soles of shoes and caring more about the souls of people in far regions. So deep was the passion that stirred within him that on May 31, 1793, he walked into the little Protestant church he attended and said, Could I please share? Allowed to speak a word, he read Isaiah 54 verses 2 and 3. We must lengthen the cords, we must strengthen the stakes, he preached passionately. We must include others who have never heard. I want to go. Send me to India. His request stunned his congregation. After all, it had been 1,000 years since anyone had launched a foreign missionary endeavor. But their surprise didn't stop. What's his name? This is a who am I question. What's his name? William Carey, a gold star for you. Well done. Their surprise didn't stop Carey's congregation from sending him to India. In his first 10 years, he became fluent in 12 languages. One of his works, the Bible he translated in Sanskrit, is still used to this day. Yet William Carey goes down in history as a father of the modern missionary movement. 
as suddenly the church awoke from her lethargy. So Carrie set the example that one doesn't have to be skilled, gifted, or special to be used in the kingdom. God is simply looking for men and women who are willing to go. That's the church of Philadelphia. So it started around the 1800s, 1750, 1800s, and it's men like William Carey in India, Hudson Taylor in China, Dio Moody in America, C.H. Spurgeon in London. Evangelism was taking place and missionaries were being sent out and you get this explosion in evangelism and missions activity. And this is the new age of the church back then, which was the Church of Philadelphia. Now, the Church of Philadelphia, if you read it, as we read it, did you notice Jesus saying anything bad about this church? No, because as we're witnessing, we're too busy sharing our faith to get involved in sin, really. And love covers a multitude of sins. We're walking in love when we're evangelizing because it's quite difficult to evangelize. You're going against the flow of the world. Now, the name Philadelphia, it means brotherly love. You know the three words for, well, there's much more than three, but three words for love. There's eros, or erotic love, sensual love. Filio is brotherly love, and agape is God's love, unconditional love. And Philadelphia is the filio, or brotherly love. So the city of Philadelphia was established around 189 BC by a man named Eumanes II, and when he died, he was succeeded by his younger brother, Attalus II. Now, the younger brother really loved his older brother and so what he did was he named buildings after his older brother he minted coins bearing his brother's image and he talked about his brother constantly so he was always thinking and remembering his older brother who had passed away and consequently the people of the town began to call this city philadelphia or the city of brotherly love because of the love that this younger brother had for his older brother So, why am I talking about this? Well, it's no surprise that in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love is the center for evangelism because love is what drives evangelism. It's a concern for the lost which drives us to go and share the gospel with those who don't know it. The next part there in in verse 7 says, These things, says he who is holy, he who is true, he who is the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. So, Jesus is introducing himself to the Philadelphian church, and what does he say? These things, says he who is holy, he who is true. So, these things don't mean that Jesus tends to be holy, he tends to be true. No, it means that Jesus is true, and he is holy. Now, there's only one who is holy, who is perfectly good, and that is God. Okay, so this is another evidence for the deity of Jesus Christ. You know, before the throne, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Here we have Jesus saying, I am holy in the absolute sense of the word. Now, true. There's two words that you could translate as true. One helps you understand the difference between true and false, and the other helps you to understand the difference between the words true and fake. True and false versus true and fake. So here it's using the second word, which gives the idea of real or genuine. Jesus is the real deal. He's the genuine saviour. He's true in all that he is. He is the real man and the real God. Now, he who has a key of David, this is quite interesting. A lot of the letters, they actually take us back to the Old Testament to give us some background into what's going on and uh, give us an idea of what's going on in that church and what will happen in the church prophetically. So, in chapter 1, Jesus holds the keys of hell and death and Jesus is adding something else as he writes to this missionary church. He's holding an additional key, the key of David. Does anyone know what the key of David is? Well, let's go to Isaiah chapter 22. And the story is about a man named Shebna. 
who was a treasurer in the kingdom of Judah during the reign of Hezekiah. So he had the authority, he, he was in control of the finances of the kingdom. Now, Shebna misused the money he was entrusted with to build himself a tomb, or to purchase himself a tomb, you know, because the rich had these nice tombs that they would be buried in. And he also made chariots for himself. So he used public money to build these chariots. And then God sent Isaiah the prophet to go and tell him, Oi, what are you doing? You had an opportunity to be faithful, but you have abused your opportunity. So the key to the treasury was taken from off Shebna's shoulder. Now, they used to, according to tradition, wear the key on their shoulder. So they must have some kind of lock. And they used the key. So he was a key holder. He was the only one who could open the doors and shut the doors. Right? He had the authority to do that. He had the key. And that key was going to be taken from him and given to a more godly and more faithful man. And so Isaiah then goes on to talk about this one who used the keys properly as being fastened like a nail, meaning steadfast or dependable. It's always going to be there. Like a nail is in the wall, it's always going to stay there. So let's read a few verses from the book of Isaiah. So it's Isaiah chapter 22, verse 15 to 23. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Go, proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulchre, or tomb, here, as he who hews himself a sepulchre on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock? Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, a mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position, he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. And I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. So there's a practical story here of these two men, one unfaithful and being replaced by a faithful man. But it's a picture of Jesus. Jesus holds the key of David. So what does he mean? Well, Jesus has the authority to open and to shut, to give opportunities. He's in control. Another application here is that Jesus wasn't fastened like a nail but he was fastened with a nail and also Isaiah 9 6 the government was upon his shoulder the authority the key was upon his shoulder and we know that Jesus doesn't abuse his authority or use it for his own benefit Jesus is holy and true now why is this important because as part of the missionary church we walk by faith trusting God to provide for us and guide us day by day through and for many people God is guiding them through dangerous situations. Just like Jesus is saying, you can depend on me. I won't let you down. You can go to that far country or make that sacrifice for the sake of the gospel and I will look after you. So you think about all those missionaries I mentioned, the one name. They went there. They didn't have much money. They have to live by faith. And God had to protect them year after year after year in dangerous situations. So it says there, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. The application here is that Jesus is in control of world events and local events. He has final authority to open and shut doors to create and remove opportunities. Jesus is in control and he has a plan and we just need to trust him. So Jesus opens the door for missions for William Carey in India and Hudson Taylor in China. And we need to realize that 
opportunities for witnessing missions and evangelism are our open doors. God is still opening doors today. God wants to open doors for us to walk through. And the question is, will I be bold enough to trust God enough to walk through that door, to share the gospel with that person? And then in verse 8, I know your works, see I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So first up, verse 8, I know your works, they were good works. There's no rebuke here, there's no correction. The church of Philadelphia had served God well in difficult circumstances, and Jesus commends him for it. And then he says, see, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. So, practically speaking, in the day, they were given an open door to go and witness some ministry opportunity. We don't know really what it is. But in the open door, uh, when it's used in Scripture, it often means for evangelistic opportunity. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 16.9, 2 Corinthians 2.12, and Colossians 4.3. All speak of like an open door of opportunity to share the gospel. So Jesus opens the door, so they need to walk through it. And remember that Philadelphia had that evangelistic calling. It was created as a missionary city to spread the Greek culture. Well, now Jesus opens the door for the Christians of Philadelphia to spread the culture of his kingdom, the message of his kingdom through the whole region. Now. The word see, God opens the door, but sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes we're pretty blind. We can be too busy. We can be distracted. We need to be watching and praying. Otherwise, we'll be blind to the evangelistic opportunities that God gives us. Here's a story from Spurgeon's time. A man once came to Spurgeon and asked how he could win others to Jesus. Spurgeon asked him, what are you? What do you do? The man said, I am an engine driver on a train. Then, says Spurgeon, is the man who shovels coal on your train a Christian? I don't know, said the man. Go back, says Spurgeon, and find out and start on him. So you don't need to go to another country. As I said before, those unreached people groups could be your next door neighbour. So, application for us, when we see an open door, we have to walk through it. And But to see it, we need to be walking with the Lord in his word, in prayer, and free from repetitive sins. So, in relationship with him. And because God is the one who opens the doors, then guess who gets the glory? God. It's all him. Now, it says, for you have little strength. Is this a positive or a negative? Wouldn't it be better if Jesus said, you've got great strength? But he says, no, you have little strength. No, this is actually a positive, and I'll explain why. It's because Jesus has and always will continue to accomplish great things through relatively few people and relatively little resources and in the face of incredible opposition. That's how God works. And Jesus gets the glory. You think of Gideon. You know, he had this army of 30,000, then it was 10,000, then it was 300, something like that. And God says, you know, when there was 30,000, too many, you'll say that we did it on our own strength. 10,000, still too many. 300 against hundreds of thousands. Well, I don't think you're going to take credit for that if you win. (laughs) So I'm just going to read through 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. It says, Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose the things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can boast in the presence of God. So. This term, a little strength, does not imply weakness, but real strength. Real strength. They were weak enough to be strong in the Lord. It's an oxymoron, isn't it? We can actually be too strong or too big or too sure of ourselves for God to really use us. And that's 
Peter. Remember Peter? Jesus says, you're going to deny me. He said, no, I'm not. All the other disciples will, but I will never deny you. How dare you say that? A good example of this dynamic of weakness and strength is the Apostle Paul. God's strength was made evident in his weakness. And the same is true for us. So that's um, 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10. It says, Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness, human weakness. God's power works best in human weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses. And in the New King James it says infirmities, but I looked up the word, it is actually weaknesses. You know, weaknesses, not sicknesses, but weaknesses. So that the power of Christ can work through me. I'll read that bit again. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So remember I was just saying before that we can be too confident, we can be too strong, too big, too sure of ourselves. What does it say here? I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. It's only when we're weak and we submitted to God that his power flows through us, that he will use us the way he wants us to be used. Now the next thing it says there, have kept my word. Now, in that day and also the Church of Philadelphia era in the church age, it's characterized by a return to the word of God. Now, what did Spurgeon do? Taught the word. You know, what did John Wesley do? Taught the word. They came back to the word. They studied the scriptures constantly. And that makes sense because the key to evangelism is a love for the lost. And how do we gain a love for the lost like Jesus had? Well, you can't just manufacture love. First, you need to be in your word. As you're in your word, you'll start to know more about God. As you know more about God, you'll start to love him more. And as you love him more, then you'll obey him. And you'll be abiding in him. And then you'll be able to keep his word, as it says here. And then it says, And have not denied my name. The church in Philadelphia was faithful to Jesus and his word. Now, what does it mean by not denied my name? Does it mean that when they are taken before the court that they won't offer incense to the emperor? Or is it more than that? So when we pray at the end of our prayers, I pray this in the name of Jesus. What do we mean by that? Yeah, his nature, his character. That's it. So it's talking about his character. They have not denied his name. So it's not just their allegiance to Jesus, but they lived in a way that reflected the name or character of Jesus. So when we pray and we say in Jesus' name, what we're saying, we're praying according to the character and nature of Jesus. We're praying the things that Jesus would pray with the motive that Jesus would have. Okay, In the name of Jesus, in the character of Jesus. Now, unfortunately, there are churches that claim great faithfulness to the word, but they deny his name, his character. And they represent the manner and style of Jesus as something very different from what the Bible shows. So what they actually do is not what Jesus is. Now, quickly to finish, look at the features of the church in Philadelphia. They had evangelistic opportunity where it says, I have set before you an open door. They have reliance on God. You have a little strength. And they have faithfulness to Jesus. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. So, great place to finish. This is what we should be aiming for. And keep in mind that 
Jesus was completely pleased with this church. He had nothing negative to say about this church. So, evangelistic opportunity, look for the open doors. God's giving them to us. Reliance on God, we have a little strength. He is our strength. And faithfulness to Jesus, kept my word and not denied my name. You're walking as Jesus would walk, okay? Loving as Jesus would love. And I'm just going to finish with a quote. It says, The Church of Philadelphia is commended for keeping the word of the Lord and not denying his name. Success in Christian work is not to be measured by any other standard of achievement. I'll say that again. The Church of Philadelphia is commended for keeping the word of the Lord and not denying his name. Success in Christian work is not to be measured by any other standard of achievement. It is not rise in ecclesiastical position, like, you know, ranks. It is not the number of new buildings which have been built through a man's ministry. It is not the crowds that flock to listen to any human voice. All these things are frequently used in churches today as yardsticks of success, but they are earthly and not heavenly measures of success. So we don't measure success by how many people come, by the money, by the buildings, by our position in the church. No, it's about, are we faithful? All God wants for us is to be faithful in our relationship with him, and he'll do the rest. And he'll reward us for our faithfulness. So Father, I just thank you for this uh, awesome church, Lord, the one that you're opening doors for and commending them for trusting in you. Lord, they have little strength. Lord, they're weak, they're small, they're poor. But Lord, you're doing amazing things through them. And the reason that you can work through them is because they are weak. They have little strength. So help us to remember that if we think of ourselves as being sufficient, then we're not going to be depending on your sufficiency and we're doing things in our own strength and then you can't work through us. We need to be like Gideon. We need to be willing to let go of all our human and earthly resources and just trust solely in you. So help us to trust only in you and to recognize that it's only through your grace that you can work through us, that we can achieve things. Help us remember that um, when we are weak, then you are strong. Pray these things in Jesus' name. According to your character, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.